0: Always great to worship with you and great to be with you today. One of the benefits to preaching through Bible passages is that uh, you don't have to figure out what to come up with. The next sermon is kind of dictated by the passage. The difficult part about doing it is that there are some really tough passages, some tough things to hear, uh, some tough things for us to deal with and to just acknowledge that God is right and we are not if we disagree with Him. And today, uh, Paul's going to address a topic It's not very much fun to talk about, but we have to, and it really is talking about church discipline. If you want to follow along on the Bible app, you can do that, and there's uh, sermon notes in there that you can fill in, and take your own notes down at the bottom if I say something that you think is worth noting. But today we're gonna talk about church discipline. Now listen, while Paul's gonna start the conversation with a man who has committed a particular sin, it's important to see that while this sin is a really big deal, and I'll tell you why it is a big deal in a minute, The bigger deal, the bigger deal is how the church is not dealing with the issue. In fact, if you look carefully at the passage and the words that are used, Paul never addresses the man. He doesn't address him any at all and say, hey, stop doing this, you're you're wrong, you're bad, you're, you know, he doesn't do that. He's only talking to the church. And of course, we know from uh, the first chapter that Paul's not just writing to the church at Corinth, but he's writing, in essence, in a normative way, a circular letter that should be circulated to all the churches in all times and all places. And so we're going to see how Paul tells us, in essence, to deal uh, with these kind of situations today. Let's read through chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's read through the entire passage, and then we'll come back and and take it apart piece by piece and look at five big principles that Paul tells us we should adhere here to when practicing church discipline. Here's what it says. It says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from you, from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. "'Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. "'For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. "'Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, "'the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. "'I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people.' "'Not at all being in the sexually immoral of this world "'or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. "'Since then you would need to go out of the world. "'But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone "'who bears the name of brother "'if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed "'or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, "'not even to eat with such a one. "'For what have I to do with judging outsiders?' Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Wow, some tough words to hear there. But we're going to go through this bit by bit. Uh, I see in our service today that there are a, a pretty good number of young people in their high school age, young singles. Uh, uh, folks, pay attention. Because what you're going to hear today is something absolutely contrary to what this culture is telling you. And you need to decide, are you going to believe what the culture says or are you going to believe what God says? Because since they are in direct contradiction with one another, you can't accept them both. Okay? And so listen carefully uh, to what the Bible teaches us here. First point that Paul makes is that sexual immorality is unacceptable to God and it should be to the local church. Look back at verse 1. He says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Now, I want us to to read this and understand this really in its fullness, in a sense, okay? This phrase or these two English words, sexual immorality, it comes from a Greek word, pornea, which actually means any sexual conduct that is outside of God's intended purpose, God created sex to be experienced between one man and one woman in the context of marriage. Listen, it creates oneness. It creates emotional and spiritual closeness. It's provided for our enjoyment. Sex is really a very, very, very good thing when it's used for its intended purpose and in its intended context, but any sexual conduct outside of this context is described by this word, sexual immorality. And basically what it means is they're practicing sex with no morals. And it can be translated uh, as this, which includes, but is not limited to these things. Premarital sex, adultery, extramarital affairs, homosexuality, bisexuality, transgenderism, bestiality, pedophilia, prostitution, uh, a new thing maybe you're not cool with yet, throuples, three people in a couple relationship, looking at pornography, sex in a polygamous relationship, and any other sexual conduct outside of God's intended purpose this word uh, describes. In fact, Paul says, this man is practicing a specific kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the godless of the society. He's saying, listen, this guy's doing something. This member of the church is doing something that's so crazy, not even the godless are doing this. Not even the culture's doing this. And what it is, is he's having an incestuous relationship with his mother, his stepmother. Now, there are some key words to understanding what's going on here, and that's why I've left the uh, uh, verse up. I'll, I'll, if you miss the blanks, they'll come up again. But I want you to see why this is important, okay? There are some key words to understanding what's going on. He says there is sexual immorality going on. It's important to understand that because that is present tense, He's not saying, hey, this guy committed a sin three years ago and you haven't punished him yet for it. That's not what it's saying because that's not biblical. He's saying this is going on right now among you. He says a man has his father's wife. Again, that's present tense. He's actually taken up a relationship with her. Now, it's clear that it's a continuing practice that's going on. And we don't have all the intimate details of what's happened here, uh, but but what's the, the part we do know is a man and a woman were married. Uh, this man had a previous wife and had a son, and, and somehow his wife is gone. We don't know if he divorced her or if she died. We don't know what happened. But he's married again, and now this mother, this stepmother, is now having sex with her stepson. We also know that it's reported that there is sexual immorality among and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pigs. For a man, that's an adult male. So we know that it's not, you know, some 35-year-old woman with her 12-year-old son. Okay, he's a grown man. He's participating in this freely. In fact, when it says that he now has his father's wife, we don't know if they're legally divorced yet or if they are, but the man and his second wife or third wife, we don't know which one she is, they are no longer living as a couple. Now, mom is living with the son as a couple. And so we see here uh, that this man who is a member of the church is now living with his, uh, I guess, former stepmother, now wife maybe or whatever. They're living as a couple and having a sexual relationship. That's what, and listen, Paul's saying, listen, not even people far from God do this. I mean, this is crazy. And it's continuing on. That's very important. This man is not only sleeping with his stepmother, But it's continuing so that they are basically living together as husband and wife should do. Now, how serious is God about this sin as well as other sexual sins? In fact, Paul is going to talk about why sexual sin is different than other kinds of sin in in chapter 6. So come back for next week, okay? But, But here's the thing. Uh, while we talk in theological terms that all sin is the same, and we're right about that, whether a, a six-year-old child lies to his mom and dad, or whether a person goes on a shooting spree, both of those things are sins, and both of them separate us from God. In those ways, all sins are alike. That doesn't mean that all sins' circumstances are the same, that all of the consequences are the same, and it doesn't mean that even the way they affect the person who commits them are the same. And we're going to see that next week. This is a big deal. It's a big deal to God. In fact, it's such a big deal. Let's find out. To find out how God feels about a particular sin, it's really best to do this practice. We look at the Old Testament and we see how God reacted to it. Reacted to it the first time it's defined or described. Okay? And that way we get to see at least how God feels about it. Now, we aren't under the Old Testament law. We aren't under the Old Testament punishments. But it's good to see at least uh, God's feeling about certain things. So let's look at Leviticus chapter 18, verses 6 through 9. Here's what it says None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. And when it says uncover nakedness, what it means by that is getting naked for the purposes of sex. I am the Lord, he says. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. It goes on. We don't have time to read the entire passage. But it goes on to describe this act of uncovering nakedness with a whole bunch of relationships. Your father, your mother, your stepfather, your stepmother, your sister, your brother, your stepsister, your stepbrother, whether brought up in your home or not. your brother-in-law, your sister-in-law, while your brother or sister is alive, by the way, that's different. If a man and a woman are married, the man passes away. The woman is free to marry his brother, which happened a lot in those days. He's no, she's not taking his, his wife or, or yeah, he's not taking the wife away from the man. The man's passed away. That's different. Your uncle either by blood or marriage, or your aunt, your daughter-in-law, your son-in-law, your niece, your nephew, your grandson, or your granddaughter. All of these relationships, folks, are taboo and absolute outward sin for a Christian. And you want to know what the penalty in the Old Testament is for finding somebody in one of these relationships? It's death. Death. That's how big a deal this sin is to God. God. Now, while it's true that under the New Testament covenant, we no longer uh, give the penalty of death, it doesn't mean that God looks at this sin any different than he did back then, and Paul knows it. This is a big deal, that a person is living in this situation and is a member of this local church, but it's an even bigger deal that the church is allowing it to continue. That's a big deal. And Paul is frustrated and angry at the church for letting it happen. So let's see what Paul uh, says to do about this. He says, the local church must respond to known outward sin in the body. Now, what I mean by outward sin is, uh, listen, we don't go around judging each other's motives and each other's hearts. I don't go, hey, that guy got a new car. I bet he's becoming really greedy. I'm going to go talk to him and talk to him about his greed. We don't do that kind of goofy stuff around here, okay? But listen, you post a picture of you at a party getting totally and completely wasted where you can't stand up, somebody's going to talk to you. That's an outward sin. You're making it known. You're showing it outwardly. And that doesn't mean we should all get better at covering up our sins, okay? I'm just saying we deal with these things when they become known. But the local church must respond. Look at verses five, uh, chapter 5, verse 2, the first part of uh, verse 2. He says, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? What Paul's saying is, church, your response to this is absolutely wrong. It's absolutely the opposite of what it should be. He says, you're arrogant for allowing this to happen. You ought to be crying your eyes out. You ought to be brokenhearted for these people. Now, what are they arrogant about? Does it really make any sense to be arrogant about sinning? Well, let's think about that for a minute. Let's think through it. Let's look at our own culture, by the way, and what it means to be arrogant about sin in the church. Now, there's a church right down the road, and and if you've been here any time, you know that I believe in all my heart, I preach from this pulpit on a continuous basis. We are in partnership with other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, God-loving churches. We are in partnership with them. We are on the same team as them. We are about the kingdom, not our little kingdom, okay? But there is a church right down the road from this building that has some signs in their front yard. First one, if you go from this direction there, you, is vegetarian or meat lovers. I thought it was a pizza place first, you know. That'll become funnier as you think about it. Okay. <laughs> it says pierced or tattooed or both. Republican or Democrat. Now, so far, I'm good. Gay or straight. Disciples, LGBTQ plus alliance. This is a prime example of exactly what this church was doing. They're actually arrogant about accepting people who are practicing open sexual sins into their membership. Now, let me take a little point right here. Listen, the culture has hijacked terms. They've hijacked terms for us, okay? If somebody is struggling with the temptation of being uh, um, attracted to people of the same gender, that is not a sin. That is a temptation of which we all have of different kinds. But once they give into that and begin practicing uh, and fulfilling that temptation, now it becomes a sin. That's what Paul is talking about. Their cry for love and tolerance is in direct contradiction to God's cry for holiness and purity by the local church. Paul says, oh, you should react, but you shouldn't be tolerant of this behavior. You ought to be crying your eyes out that this is going on in your midst, but instead you're celebrating the fact Paul's Paul's really saying here, man, you guys are unbelievable. Really? Are you kidding me? While it is sinful and angers God for someone to be involved in this type of sin, folks, listen carefully to me, it angers him even more when a local church celebrates, allows, or even tolerates this behavior on a consistent basis by one of its members. Times may have changed, but God has not. Listen, this church at Corinth is in big trouble with Paul especially because they know this is going on and they're not only doing nothing about it, that would almost be better than what they're doing. They're celebrating its very existence in their membership. So what should the church do? If the, if the church shouldn't do that, what should we do? Well, let's see what God says about that in verses two, 2, the second half of 2 through 5. He says, deliver the unrepentant sinner to Satan, which includes excommunication. Here's what it says. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Did that on Deliver the unrepentant sinner to Satan. Wow. Now, now, what does that look like in real life? I mean, do we, do we attack him? We tie him up? We put a bow on his head and, and put a, you know, set him out on the front steps of the church and say, to Satan, please pick up one of it. We, no, that's not what it's saying. How do we deliver somebody to Satan? Well, first of all, Paul says, uh, you know, if I was there, I'd do something about this. You ought to, you, my spirit's there. You ought ought to do something about it as if I was there. He says, let him be removed from you. He says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved. Harsh words. Paul says he's already passed judgment on this guy. Now, remember at this point, we're missing a letter to the church at Corinth, okay? Okay? In actuality, 1 Corinthians is really Second Corinthians and 2 Corinthians is really 3 Corinthians because we don't have 1 Corinthians, okay? Paul wrote a letter to the church at Corinth and now this letter, 1 Corinthians, is actually his response uh, to their response of the first letter, all right? That may be more confusing than I should have said. I don't know. Maybe it's not. But Paul's saying, remember, there's, you know, listen, I, I've already brought judgment on this guy. He already knows about it. He's already told him what to do. And he's told him this, this behavior is not to be tolerated. He says, you know what I would do if I was there, so do it. Paul says, kick him out. Kick him out of the church. Now, what does this term deliver Satan, deliver him to Satan mean? It means inside the body of Christ, there is a level of accountability and loving discipline that should be taking place. This phrase really means, hey, if somebody wants to live like the devil, let him go do it. Turn him over. You want to live this way that's going to be destructive to your life, destructive to your relationships, destructive to everything that you know, fine. You refuse to repent, you refuse to get it straight, you refuse to stop doing it, fine. You want to live like that, go live like that. Go do it over there. You're no longer a part of us. But I want you to understand clearly. I want you to look at this passage really clearly at the end. You are to deliver this man to Satan for what purpose? For the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You see, the whole purpose of this is you want to go live like this? Fine. Go experience it. Knock yourself out, pal. The whole purpose is so that when he lives in the flesh, he lives his life in the flesh, he receives the consequences of living in the flesh. At some point, he's going to go, my life is a wreck. I have ruined it. How in the world do I get it back? And the church is there to say, listen, we can help you. We are here to help you get your soul straight. I remember when my daughter was, and you may have heard me tell this story before because it was so profound to me. But she was about three years old, and she had this little big bird chair, and uh, it was only you know that that tall off the ground. And she was leaning back in it on a carpeted floor. And I, I said, "Mandy, don't lean back in your chair. Don't lean back in your chair. Don't lean back." And she, you know, I don't know how kids are—they uh, don't do it for thirty seconds, and then she leans back in the chair. And after she did it for a little while, I thought to myself, you know, I mean, God's made our heads pretty hard. It's a carpeted floor. She's only a foot and a half off of it. Let her do her thing. So I stopped telling her. Watched her lean back, lean back farther and farther and farther. All of a sudden, back she went, banged her head on the floor, scared her to death, came crying to me. I'm like, see, sweetheart, this is why you got to listen to your dad. It didn't destroy her. Didn't kill her. Didn't even have to fill out a report anywhere. She was fine. Okay? But I was giving her up to experience the consequences of her own behavior of disobeying her father so that she would then go, maybe next time I should listen. That's what God is doing here. He's saying, listen, give this man over to Satan. Let him go live his life in the flesh so that at some point he may fall back, bang his head on the concrete and go, wow, what do I do? God, help me. God, help me. And his soul will be saved. He will come back to his life with Christ. He'll come back to his life with the church and he'll experiencing something very new. Now, you may be thinking, man, Paul is just, Paul is just one of these harsh guys. I mean, he's kind of mean here. I mean, who would, throw, who, would, who would literally, you know, in today's enlightened world, how would anybody really throw somebody out of the church? Would we really do that? Maybe you're thinking, this is so unloving. I don't think Jesus would even ever do that, really. Let's take a look at Matthew 18. These are the words of Jesus himself. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." And by the way, this next part is probably in half of your, you know, kitchens in some plaque or something because it's all over the place and it's always used in the wrong context. This is specifically talking about the context of church discipline. It says, again, I say to you, Jesus speaking, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. What God is saying here is not, hey, if there's only two people in the room, Jesus is there with you and you can have a prayer meeting. It's not saying all that goofy stuff that we have in our heads, okay? What it's saying is, listen, if you're practicing church discipline and you've got two or three witnesses that have seen what this person is doing, God is with them in the judgment. Do it. God's put his stamp of approval on it, and this is Jesus himself speaking. Jesus established this three-step process of church discipline, and Paul is saying, guys, it's way past time for step three. Pull the trigger. By the way, we practice this here at Fellowship of Grace. You may not know that. And that's because for most of us, we get to step one, we shape up. If somebody comes to me and says, hey, Michael, I, I noticed that, you know, you've been talking to your wife in a really rude way lately. There's, I don't know what's going on, but, but you're, you're, just, you're out of line. And you need to think about that most of us around here go, oh, wow, if that's true, I really need to fix that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work on that. But this church does practice it because we do step one, we do step two. And there have been three times in the history of our church, 13 years, where we've had to go to somebody after step two and say, listen, we're begging you, we're begging you to change this in your life. We're begging you to change your behavior. But if you don't, We're going to have a business meeting today at 1 o'clock, by the way. I know you won't want to miss it. If you don't, you're going to come up at the next business meeting, and we're going to vote you out. Now, all three times that we've had to say that to somebody, all three of them have said, well, fine, I quit. I'm done. I'm out of the church. I'll let you know that we no longer allow that to happen. Now, I know we can't make anybody come. But when they do that, to absolutely avoid... Step three of a biblical process, our response to them will be, I'm sorry to hear that you're leaving, but we are going to talk about it at the next business meeting anyway. We're going to explain that we did step one. We're going to explain step two. And we're going to explain why you chose to leave, even though we would have voted you out today at step three. Now, I know some of you are here going, holy moly, I want to get out of this church quick. Or if I'm a guest here today, I don't ever want to be a part of a church that's going to vote somebody out. Okay. Okay. Folks, this is why church membership is so important, though. There are churches very, very similar to our church and like us, don't let me lose you here, very much like our church that don't have membership. In fact, some of you come here and you go through the Fog Connect class to learn more about Fellowship Grace, and Grace. You go, I have to like, sign this covenant saying I'm an actual official member of the church? Yes. You know why? Because people come here as attenders. And when you come here as an attender, man, you can just do whatever you want. We have no responsibility for you. We have no authority over you. Uh, you, We're going to love you. We're going to care about you. We're going to minister to you. We're going to share the gospel with you. We're going to disciple you. We're going to do all kinds of things just because we love you. That's it. But once you say, I want to plant my flag with you people. I want you to be my local church. Numerous things happen that we probably don't explain enough around here. One is you immediately have responsibility to do all the one another's for each other. you immediately have a responsibility to love one another, to encourage one another, uh, to forgive one another, all those things. And we'll hold you accountable to doing it. But the church has a number of responsibilities now for you, to do the one another's for you, to encourage you, to love you, to help you. We have no responsibility to people who are outside the membership of this church. Now we still love them, but we don't have responsibility to them. But the other thing that happens is you also say, I'm gonna place myself under the authority of the umbrella of this church. I'm gonna place myself under the authority of fellowship of grace. I'm giving them the green light that when they see me doing something destructive to my life, in loving care for me, they will come to me. And they'll say, hey man, listen, I love you, but I see what you're posting on Facebook. I see how it's gonna be destructive to your life and I wanna help you. I I wanna encourage you to turn away from it and I wanna do everything I can to help you. Will you please let me do that? And the, the, the point is not to just be mean to people and judge each other. The point is always for us to grow and to love one another. That's why church membership is important because we know who we're responsible to and who we aren't. By the way, not only are the leaders are responsible for practicing church discipline, but if you look in all of these verses, it never says, go to the elders and have them go, to you, go with you. It's everybody's responsibility. We're, it's our responsibility to look after each other, folks. Listen, if I'm going off the rails, if you see me doing something that's, that's obvious, uh, uh, outward sin, you have a responsibility to me to love me enough to come to me and before I destroy my life, say, Michael, I see what's happening and I want to invite you to come back. Repent from it, stop it before you destroy your life. We owe that to each other. We owe that to each other. I remember when I was about 25 and... I was uh, uh, playing Christian music as my career, and uh, you know, as soon as you get up on stage, everybody thinks you're this wonderful, godly person, so they ask you to do all kinds of crazy things that you shouldn't be doing. But somebody called me out of the blue, and this was before caller ID and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we still had the crank phones, Well, it wasn't quite that bad. Okay, it wasn't quite that bad. Uh, but they called me and they said, "Hey, uh, Michael, uh, I saw you at a concert the other day, and I got, I got a problem. I want you to uh, give me some advice." I'm like, "All right, you know, I'm a 25-year-old guy that." Loves Jesus and studies the Bible, but I don't know what I'm doing. And they said, hey, listen, I, I know I, I've come about some information that I probably shouldn't have, but my pastor is having an affair with his secretary. And I love my pastor. He's invested in my life. He's, he's done really good things. He's done good things with this church. But I, I can't just ignore this. What should I do? Now, today I would say, well, you need to go talk to him. And if he doesn't listen to you, then come get me. But I didn't, I didn't know enough. I didn't have enough sense to do that at that time. So here's what I did. I got off the phone with I, Well, I told him on the phone. I said, listen, here's what I want you to do. If three weeks pass by and nothing happens, it's still going on, you call me back. But if it gets taken care of, then move on. So I called this pastor out of the blue. I said, hi, I'm not going to tell you who I am, but here's what I'm calling about. I happen to know that you're having an affair with your secretary. Silence. Yes, and? And I want to encourage you to repent. I could have gone there and blown up the church and had a whole bunch of hurt feelings and hurt people. I said, I want you to repent. I want you to get this right. Stop doing this. But if you don't, I'm going to know you don't. And and then it has to escalate. So for the sake of yourself, for the sake of your people, for the sake of the gospel, will you please just stop doing what you're doing? He said, yes, I will. I found out later that three weeks later, the secretary, well, less than three weeks later, the secretary uh, quit her job. Uh, her and her husband moved out of town and it completely stopped. Listen, folks, that's the way church discipline is supposed to work. We call each other to repentance and, and, and relationships are, are they're, they're uh, um, saved. They're They're not destroyed. Why is this so important? Why is it important to do this stuff? Well, Paul tells us why. He says, acceptance of sinful behavior is a cancer to the body of Christ. Look at verses 6 through 8. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul shares with them this kind of word picture that they understand. And I only understand it because I don't, I don't know much about baking, but I watch the baking channel or the cooking channel quite a bit. Not by choice, but I, I do. Anyway, <laughs> I know what leaven does. And, and so it, he said, it only takes a little leaven to make the whole dough rise. You don't have to have a whole lot of it. It just, it just does its thing. It says, when the local church accepts, allows, endorses a little outward sin, it gives justification to everybody to go ahead and practice their own sin, doesn't it? Because if I were to come to you and say, hey, you know, you're doing this, you need to stop that. Well, you let, you let Joe get away with it. Why does Joe get away with it? And I don't. That's not fair. And all of a sudden, it's a green light to everybody. Because the church doesn't practice some discipline, They generally practice no discipline. You'll find a lot of churches that would never do this. And they allow the members to just run amok doing whatever their little sinful hearts desire. They don't love them enough to just say, please stop for your sake, not for my sake. In 1 Timothy uh, 6, verse 10, it says that the love of money or greed is the root of all kinds of evil. So if somebody in the body is living a greedy life, all kinds of evil will follow them. All kinds of evil will befall them because they're living this greedy life. It's way better for somebody to say, hey, stop being greedy. Oh, okay, you're right. I shouldn't do that. Listen, folks, the local church cannot, should not, and this one will not tolerate outward sins of their members, especially sexual sins, and not say a word about it. Now, this is why couples that come here and are living together can't become members. And I'm going to lose some of you here, and, and I, I'm sorry, but stay, try to stay with me if you can, okay? In our culture, uh, couples that are between the ages of 18 and 30, if they love each other and they're going to get married someday, you know, like 90% of them are living together. I mean, it's, it's huge, the number that are living together. And so a young couple comes here and they want to be a part of this church and and they're living together and they say, hey, we want to become members. The answer is no. It's not no forever. It's no until you resolve this issue. And by the way, we love you and we want to help you resolve this issue as quickly and as easily as we can. You can do that a number of ways. You could get married. Well, we want to get totally out of debt before we get married You're going to be in debt the rest of your life. Just go ahead and get married, you know, (laughs) whatever. Don't wait, you know, don't make silly excuses not to get married and live in sin. We actually have people in our church who have said, I'm an empty nester now, we have extra bedrooms. If somebody comes to our church like that and they want to live free of charge for six months in our home while you do premarital counseling with them and they get married to do the right thing, we will allow them to do that. Folks, that's how much we want to help them. That's how much we love them. That's how much we want to help them get on the right path. They're, in essence, asking us to validate and embrace their poor choice of having premarital sex. Now, listen, while we love them, we care about them, we want them to grow in their faith, they have to resolve this issue before becoming members. Now, some of you are thinking right now, probably, probably, Man, that's just, that's just really harsh in our culture. I mean, they don't know anybody. They're, listen, if, if we had a new member family come to our church and sit right over here, and the wife and the children come here every week covered in bruises because the man is beating the pulp out of them, and you know they just became members of this church, you would, you would hang us from the nearest tree as well you should. Why did you let this guy become a member while he's beating his wife and kids? We're not going to do that. Now listen, if he comes here and says, hey, listen, I have a problem with my anger, I need some help, I need encouragement, I need prayer, I need accountability, will you guys help me? Yes, you can be a member. But if you say, hey, listen, I do this all the time and I'm just going to keep doing it, so celebrate my anger with me. No. We just don't do that. And we don't treat sexual sin any different, folks. By the way, this also is like someone who is already a member of Fellowship of Grace, and begins to shack up with somebody either of the opposite sex or the same sex in a relationship, we, we would need to address it. Now we don't, you don't, those things happen without you knowing about it, by the way. Listen, Paul ends this area of instruction with a clarification of his previous letter. He previously states, based on what he's going to say in a minute, that we should not associate with people engaged in sexual immorality. But some in the church have misunderstood it or they've chosen to teach falsely that Paul is suggesting not being around people outside the church. Let's just get in a holy huddle and come to church and just, just be around the holy people like us. Which is not what he's saying at all. So Paul explains. He clarifies for ministering to sinners outside the church. Here's what he says in verses 9 through 15. It says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, Or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Listen, if we're gonna avoid sinners, we got nobody else to talk to. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother in the church if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, or a reviler, or drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, it's clear that Paul's not saying to hang out, uh, to not hang out with sinners outside the church. Yeah. He says, listen, if you're going to do that, you might as well just hang it up because you've got to leave the planet. There ain't nobody to talk to. But what he's saying is don't hang out with people in the church that are living like the devil. In fact, don't even be seen with them. Don't eat with them. He says that we as the local church should be judging our members' behavior. God will judge those, the, the world outside, that aren't committed to him. He'll take care of that. What Paul's really saying is, look, guys, you've got, you got enough issues to deal with amongst yourselves. Don't worry about them. I'll take care of them. You've got enough problems here to deal with. Folks, practicing church discipline in a loving, biblical way, with repentance and reconciliation always being the goal, is the right thing for a local church to do. We should take seriously our commitment to follow Jesus and purge sinful behaviors out of our own lives. Never to tolerate, embrace, or celebrate them. By the way, if you're here this morning and you're thinking, man, this is a good sermon. I, I need to go talk to that guy today about his problems. I need to go talk to him and tell him what he needs to shape up on or what he's doing outwardly. Before you do that, go home this afternoon, stand in front of the, literally, stand in front of the mirror and go am i in a position to do that because the Bible's really clear if you stand there and you see a big giant two by four sticking into the side of your head don't go talking to, to joe about the splinter in his eye but what the bible does say is first remove the board from your own eye stop doing what you're doing so you're in a position to go help your brother if you uh, have been here all morning and, and, and you've heard, you think you've heard a sermon about being judgmental and angry and frustrated with one another and, and pointing fingers at each other, and listen, all of those terms are completely contrary to anything I've said today. I'm talking about seeing somebody doing destructive behavior that it's a sin, absolutely a sin as according to God's word. You go and lovingly try to coax them into giving that up So that they can receive the benefits and the blessing of following Jesus rather than the consequences of being contrary to God. See, the heart of it is is really love. The heart of it really is concern. The heart of it really is care for one another and accountability to one another. When this is done right, when this is done right, you know what it does? It does purge the sin out of the church. It does encourage and help people. And by the way, when I was saying that in the first service, that that done biblically and done correctly, this is loving and it's kind and it's helpful and it's the right thing to do for one another. There were about three or four people in the service going like this. Yep, yep, And And as I saw who they were, they're all people that I've had to talk to at some point about a big issue in their life. And they're like, yeah, it was loving. It was kind. It was helpful to me. It kept me from making even bigger mistakes. It kept me from going down a path that would have destroyed my family or destroyed my my reputation or whatever. They They were confessing, in a sense, by their head shake that when done right, this is a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. Listen, if we don't have the power to do this ourselves, then we need to rely on others around us to provide encouragement, prayer, loving accountability, so that we can respond positively when they have to to give that stuff to us. Again, I invite you, if I'm doing something like that, I invite you. You have the green light to come to me and say, Michael, I've seen this, I've seen you doing this. It's not a one-time thing. By the way, when you look at these words, like drunkard right there, That's not somebody who goes out one night and they, let's say they go out one night and they were at their class reunion and they drank too much and they drove home and they got a DUI and, uh, you know, the whole church doesn't wind up at their front yard going, you can't be in our church anymore. There's nothing goofy like that, okay? This is something where that's describing their life. It's not somebody who got drunk once. It's somebody who is a drunkard. That word describes their life. So, if there is a sin that is so prevalent in someone's life that you would describe them that way, that's what we need to talk about these things. But I don't want you to leave today going, man, that was about the biggest downer sermon I've ever been to. <laughs> I don't know if I'm ever coming back to that church. I don't want you to think that this is a downer sermon. This is a sermon about being responsible, mature Christians. Enough to love one another, to help each other, and not pussyfoot around each other and say, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, so I don't want to tell them that they're about to jump off a cliff. Hurt their feelings. If I'm about to jump off a cliff, listen, if you see me and I'm doing some sin and I got my foot out here like this, the most loving thing to do is to grab me by the shirt and pull me back. And the most unloving thing to do is to say, well, I don't want to hurt his feelings, So I'm just gonna watch him jump off the cliff. Folks, that's the most unloving thing we can do for one another. When done right, this is an encouragement to the church and it's an encouragement to the lost community. When done wrong, this can be devastating. Paul's saying, don't put up with this behavior in the church. Do something about it, but do it right. Do it in the right way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that guides us and instructs us that helps us to understand not only what to do, but how to do it. Father, forgive me for the sins that I have committed that are sometimes so outward that others have had to tell me, Michael, watch out for yourself. But God, I thank you for their love and for their concern that was enough to help me before I jumped off the cliff. God, help us to be the kind of church that love each other enough, that support each other enough, that want to encourage each other to do right enough that we practice this in a loving and biblical way. Help us never, never become the kind of church who believe that we're being loving and tolerant when we are being unholy and unrighteous in your sight. God, help us to always balance that and to be the kind of church that brings honor and glory and attention to you and makes you famous in the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.